Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we continue on our series, Christ's Cross and an Empty Tomb. The name of this sermon is called Realism Without Despair, Optimism Without Pride. And Pastor David will be preaching from Luke 20, 9-19. Let's join Pastor David now. How are your optimism levels today? Not the kind of optimism uh, that's embedded maybe in your personality, some by, perhaps by personality, by wiring, by temperament. You're going to lean one way or the other, more or less optimistic. You know who you are and where you land. <laughs> your spouse, your friends know who you are and where you land. How are your optimism levels? Not the kind that's rooted in your personality. The deep kind of optimism, the deep kind of hope that's underneath all of that. Uh, the kind of questions that you wrestle in your mind of, of is everything going to be okay? And not just in a thin surface level platitude kind of question. I'm talking those deep, deep, deep levels of your soul. The kind of questions that you're wrestling with as you're trying to go to bed at night, or trying to stay asleep at night, kind of questions that wake you up in the middle of the night, things that are swirling in your mind. How are, how are those kind of optimism levels? Because there can be a whole bunch of things that, that take digs at that deep inner sense of hope. Uh, maybe, perhaps for some of you, you've been overwhelmed Maybe overwhelmed by uh, various ideologies that as you're looking at your kids and grandkids and you're thinking, how in the world are they going to navigate the world that I don't even recognize? You can take a dig at your sense, that deep, low inner sense of, of hope. Maybe um, the kind of feeling of overwhelm. Maybe there's just so many things. And maybe any one of the things that are facing you, you think, you know, I can handle it if it was just that. But it's seven or eight or 11 or 12 things come in all different angles. Work, vocation, relationship, family, marriage, friendship, finances, all at once. And deep underneath there, you might be wondering, is everything going to be okay? Is this ship going to sink? Am I going to make it through? Or maybe for some of you, it's navigating pain, um, relational pain, emotional pain, maybe physical pain. Maybe pain that's come up absolutely out of nowhere and it's, it's hit you like a lightning bolt. Maybe pain that's chronic. It's stuck around this low-level draining pain that's been around for years, maybe decades. Pain. And when those things hit us, it can, it can mess with the deep sense of optimism and hope that undergirds all things, we start to ask the questions like, God, do you really got this? Are you really in control? Are you really going to see your purposes and your plans through? Have I exhausted your faithfulness? <laughs> I know that you say you're faithful, and I know that you say your faithfulness endures forever, but is that, is that, am I included in that? A while back, and I'd shared this with uh, some people here and there in conversation, there was a, a, a meme I stumbled upon. It, it um, cycled through my family's text thread. This little picture of someone peeking around the corner, you know, like this, just, you know, just peeking. Caption, 
just checking in on all the things I left in your hands, Lord. <laughs> just, just checking. That's the kind of deep question that I'm talking about. How's that level of optimism deep, deep, deep in your soul? And that question is, and you're going to answer that differently depending on uh, perhaps circumstances you've gone through or perhaps the season that you find yourself in. But I hope and trust today that the passage that we're going to look at is going to speak to that kind of level of our hearts. Those kinds of questions that reside deep in our souls. Are God's purposes, are God's plans, is God's character really going to see us through the day? Is the ship really going to make it? Is there really hope? Not just a hope that's embedded in a different set of circumstances, but a deep sense of hope that can only be rooted in God. So let's look at this text together. Uh, Meet me in Luke chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 19 as we're, uh, in some ways, starting a a fresh and new sermon series within the Gospel of Luke that will take us all the way to the end of the book. That as we've seen this entire book unfold and snowball on itself, we're coming to the culmination, Christ's cross and empty tomb. Today, we're looking at Luke chapter 20. Luke 20, 9 to 19. Let me read this passage for us. It says that Jesus began to tell the people uh, this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, his vineyard. He planted it. He owns it. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And then the owner, the man who planted the vineyard, sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also. They wounded and cast out. Verse 13, Luke 20. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? He sent three servants. They're beaten and they're cast out. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The people hearing this parable said, when they heard this, they said, surely not. But Jesus looked directly at the people and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 19, final verse of this portion. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. That's what we're going to look at today. Let me pray, and then we'll look at it together. Let's pray. Father, Give us a deep, overwhelming sense of your character, your love, your faithfulness, your care, your patience, your forbearance, your long-suffering, 
and the hope that only comes anchored in you. You can do that. We trust you for it. Illumine your word. Lord, we acknowledge and recognize every time we open your word, we enter a spiritual battle. Our sin doesn't want to hear it. Satan doesn't want us to hear it. Distractions uh, 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 tug us to the left and to the right. So, Father, we pray that by your spirit, if there's any wall in our heart that we raise up for the word that you are trying to say to us, Lord, would you, would you <laughs> climb over it, dig under it, blast through it, reach all the way down to the depths of our hearts and infuse an incredible sense of hope? You can accomplish it. Do it again here today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. We see this parable about, that's all about a vineyard and nothing about a vineyard <laughs> at the same time. And it opens with uh, the Lord sending his servants and then his son to the vineyard that he has planted. Let's break this down and look at it closely again. Look at verse 9. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and, and went into another country for a long while. We see later in verse uh, 13 uh, that the owner of the vineyard, and that word for owner is the same word that's translated Lord. Now, sometimes the word Lord can just mean master, sir, but in this case, it means Lord, Lord, the Lord. This man who's planted the vineyard in this parable, do you see the character in the parable points to the person of God. God has planted a vineyard, a people, and he has placed uh, over uh, this vineyard, tenants, religious leaders, and you can go all the way through the story of the Bible, that as God uh, calls a people unto himself, and he plants this people, as it were, and those of you who perhaps you've already started getting into your gardens this spring, you know this very well. Planting and gardening in vineyards, cultivating, it takes time. And, and we plants are stubborn. <laughs> Weeds grow up around us that have to be tended to. Uh, uh, insects attacked us that have to be fought away. Uh, sometimes we want to grow in ways that the owner of the garden doesn't want us to grow. Uh, we're shaped, we're molded, we're fragile. Uh, too much heat, too much cold, too much rain, too much of anything, and we can wither, we're threatened. And God is planting his people, planting his vineyard. And then it says in verse 9 that he, he goes away for a long while. Now in that, don't read abandonment, read patience, long-suffering, forbearance. Just as a gardener waits patiently, tending carefully, meticulously, uh, deep enough into the soil that they know the soil, deep enough into the plant that they know the needs of the, of, of the plant. Think of that when we think of the character of God, his patience with us, his long-suffering with us, his forbearance. Uh, he gives us plenty of time to know him, to respond to him. That's the character of the God that we see in verse 9, planting his people, us. Verse 10 and following. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, servants, we see, uh, it's one of the ways that God's prophets throughout the Bible are described. So all throughout the Old Testament, God keeps sending people to represent him. God's saying, I have something to say. You say it to the people. Servants. 
ministers of God's word. All throughout the Old Testament, servants sent to tenants, religious leaders who are called to, in a way, uh, be, uh, take care of the vineyard, of the people, on behalf of the owner of the vineyard, God. And look what happens. In escalating uh, instances, all three of these servants are mistreated, hurt, beaten, cast aside. Verse 10, when the time came, he sent servants to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Second, another servant, but they beat and treated him shamefully, sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12, third servant, this one they wounded and cast out. So all three of these servants are increasingly hurt. At that point, you'd think, oh my goodness, turn back, <laughs> run away, give up, abandon. But what does God do? What does the person in the parable do? The owner of the vineyard said, what then shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Beloved son, that's not an accident of the word choice that Jesus uses in this parable. We've seen that before. The beginning of the gospel of Luke, the baptism of Jesus, the heavens open, a voice is heard, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We see pretty quickly that parable is pointing to someone pretty specific, a unique son, a one and only son, God's son. Now why in the world, why in the world would he send his son. When it says, when it says perhaps they will respect him, by respecting him, in, in the context of the parable, remember, God, the owner of the vineyard, sends his son. Now, in biblical times, and in, even in traditional cultures yet today, uh, resources, the family wealth, the family inheritance is passed down through the eldest son, whoever that might be. That's how it's handed off, generation to generation. The eldest son takes care of the entire family unit. That the owner of the vineyard has been setting servants who are not rightful heirs and owners of the vineyard, just representatives of God. But when the son comes, he is the rightful owner. He, he's not just representing the owner. He is the owner of the vineyard. That's what it means in the parable. Perhaps they'll respect him. Perhaps they'll see, I'm not just sending a, a representative. I'm sending my own blood, my own flesh. I'm sending myself in a way. Perhaps they will Respect him. But look at how this unfolds. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. They're not ignorant of it. They know it. Let's kill him. Why? So that the inheritance may be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Christ crucified outside the camp. Christ crucified outside the city walls. Christ come to his people and his own do not see him, his own reject him. Christ crucified for us. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed them. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? And we notice, we see, uh, there's the... The servants can't even claim ignorance. They can't even say, oh my goodness, we had no idea it was your son. Why did we do such a horrible thing? It'd be horrible anyway. It's precisely because they know who it was. 
It's exactly because they knew the identity of the son who is coming to them. That's why they killed him. Why? Then the vineyard will be ours. Now we can be in control. Now we can be lords. Now we can be masters of our fate. We can be the captain of our ship, of our lives. Perhaps all of this, all that God has entrusted us to steward, now, if the air is out of the way, it can be ours. So they, they kill him. They kill him. In a way, we've seen this, this principle, this idea, unfolding through the Gospel of Luke. Remember Luke chapter 13, verse 34, when Jesus laments over Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How long would I have gathered you as, as, as a, a mother hen gathers her, her chicks, her brood to herself? Yet you would not. Yet you would not receive me. Yet you would not come under refuge of my wings. Yet you would turn aside. You would crucify and kill the very ones I've sent to you. And God is saying in that verse and in this parable over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout the story of the Bible... We see God sending help, God sending hope, God sending his servants, God sending his word, and we, humanity, respond by crushing, crushing the prophets, crushing the servant, all the way up uh, to John himself, in a way, the final prophet that hands the redemptive historical baton over to Jesus himself, the ultimate prophet, come to us, come for us. And we see in this parable once again, this, it, it unfolds again. The servants destroy the one sent to them, for them. Representative of God, in this case, Christ, God himself, come to us and for us. The Lord sends his servant and his son to the vineyard. And they're destroyed. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He extends his vineyard to more. He extends his vineyard to others. And there's something very sobering and something very hopeful about what is said next. Let's look at this. Look at verse 16. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Verse 15. Verse 16. He will come and destroy those tenants, very sobering, and give his vineyard to others, very hopeful. And when the people heard this, they said, surely not. These words were just as shocking then as they are shocking now. That as Jesus says this, what, what is happening? Destroy the tenants. On the sobering side, what we are seeing, what we are beholding, again, these, these tenants, not owners of the vineyard, representatives to tend to and take care of the vineyard that is owned by God, and yet they mistreat all those who are sent, and therefore God says, I'm going to destroy these tenants and hand the vineyard uh, to others, extend the vineyard to others, give the vineyard uh, to others. The sobering reality that we're seeing is, in a way, God's justice is holding accountability to those who are called to be stewards of the vineyard, yet overreach to become owners themselves, mistreating those along the way. It's a sobering picture, but it's a necessary picture because God, precisely because God is a God of love, he can't sweep wrongdoing under the rug. He can't just say, ah, you know what, well, let's just keep marching along. 
It's exactly because God is a loving and merciful God that when this wrongdoing takes place, he actually holds the tenants accountable to the wrongdoing that they have done. And it's a sobering picture of his holiness, of his justice, is it not? It reminds us that the God that we worship is, is a God to be feared, a God to be revered, a God that we recognize uh, has all authority, all power, all might, all loving, all merciful, all compassionate, both at the same time. This is not a God that we can comprehend. This is not a God that, that, that we are creation. He is creator. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. At some extent, when you're getting to know the God of the Bible, there will be times as you're reading his word, there will be times as you're getting to know him more where your understanding is going to give way into a reality, Lord, that I cannot comprehend the full complexity of your character, loving and just at the same time, holy and compassionate at the same time. It's such a way that these attributes don't lessen each other, but they deeper, they enrich each other. They speak into each other. And at a certain point, we're going to have to say, Lord, I can't fully comprehend who you are. My friends, that's where worship starts. Lord, I know you enough. You've revealed yourself to us. We can know you, but my goodness, I can't. Not fully, not completely. That's where worship takes over. We see a sobering reality, and we see an incredible hopeful reality in what Jesus is saying in this verse, he's going to give the vineyard to others. And what we're seeing here is a small glimpse, which becomes clear as, we, as you look at the story of the Bible, that God's heart has always been my people for my nations, for my glory. We get a tiny glimpse here that God has come to the Jew first then also to the Greek. All throughout the Old Testament, God's chosen people have been designed to be a people through which, not chosen because they're better, not chosen because they're more excellent than others, chosen simply because of God's sheer grace, simply because he chose. And God, choosing his people, Israel, through the Old Testament so that they may be a light to the nations. That's exactly what Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6 says. There's this brilliant little verse, Isaiah 49, 6. Chase it down later. It, it opens with the language, it's too light a thing. It's too small a thing. It's too little a dream. It's, it's too small a hope that you, that I would raise up you to be my servant, to raise up the lost tribes of Jacob, to bring back the people of Israel. If that was the only part of the mission, it's not big enough, it's not grand enough. Rather, Isaiah 49, 6 says, I will make you to be a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. God's heart has always been for the nations. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, every accent, every skin tone, every hair texture, every people group, Every, every people from, from all the people groups all around the world, that's what heaven's going to look like, and that's what God's heart is. His heart has always been my people, for my nations, for my glory. And when God says here, I'll give the vineyard to others, do you see what he's doing? He's advancing his mission. He's broadening his mission. He's, he's expanding it in a way. It's always been expanded. It's always been broad. But we see here God saying there's going to be a unique door for the Gentiles, the nations, that's going to reach broad and wide in a way that would be shocking to God's people. That's why they say, surely not. 
Surely not. (laughs) Yet God reaches. God's expanding his mission. God sends his servant and his son. And then God extends the vineyard. Why? Why this? Why this direction? Why this focus? Why this mission? Because Christ is the very cornerstone of his growing kingdom. The kingdom that he's establishing and building and growing. He himself is the very cornerstone of that foundational saving source of our residence in him, that we are welcomed into him. We are built up on the cornerstone who is Christ. It's his growing kingdom. His heart is to grow his people through the gospel of grace, union with Christ. Look at this. Look at this. Uh, Verse 17. He looked directly at them. Gives you chills a little bit. He looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Don't miss the irony of that response. When when it says that the scribes and the chief priests at that very moment... They hear a parable about God sending his son to tenants and the son is killed. How do they respond? Let's kill him. (laughs) That very moment, they're living, they are the parable. They sought that Jesus told this parable against their right. And at that very moment, they sought to kill him. And there's an incredible sobering irony about that. It's unfolding exactly as this parable says. Exactly the same parable that frustrates them is, again, um, fueling the fires to destroy Jesus. And yet, the very stone that is rejected, the chief priests and scribes are seeking to destroy him. That action in itself is the rejection of the cornerstone. It's this stone who is Christ, discarded, cast aside, uh, left in the field to, to, to gather moss and, and, and grass and stick and foliage. This stone that's looked at and is, is just brushed aside. That's Christ. That's what's happening. That's what's unfolding. It's going to culminate in his ultimate rejection, his ultimate tossing aside. But do you see? My goodness, there's an irony. That stone that was rejected becomes the cornerstone. Those of you who are in construction deep enough know you're going to get this first and fastest. The cornerstone really, 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 really matters. It's really important that a cornerstone was laid with absolute meticulous care, sober placement. You have got to get that stone right because if you get the cornerstone wrong, the whole thing is thrown off. A millimeter off on this stone is two or three feet off on the end of the wall. And this cornerstone that is laid becomes the foundational piece of the building, of the structure that does what? Unites two very different walls together in one building, one structure. It's the very stone upon which everything is built, the foundation, the bedrock. Now, why is Jesus saying, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them? In a way, Christ himself, is, he, is Christ our ultimate hope or is Christ uh, our sobering demise? It depends. It depends on how we respond to him. In a similar way, if this was a stone and I ignore it and just walk right into it, I can trip and fall to my own demise. 
If Christ, the cornerstone, if I become prideful and in my own might, I think I can outweigh him. I think I can outlast. I think I can, I'm stronger than he is. And, and I try to hold him. If that stone was tossed at me or fell on me, I'd be crushed. I can't outweigh him. He's weightier. He's more powerful. He's more glorious. I ignore Jesus and I can trip over him and fall. I pridefully, you know, puff my chest and shake my fist and say, I can handle this. He's too weighty. I'll be crushed. But if I humbly receive him, if I humbly receive him, if I trust him, then what happens? Then I step up on that stone. I'm built up. I rise. Built upon Christ the cornerstone, included into his kingdom. It really, really matters how we respond to Jesus. We ignore him. In rebellion, we shake our fists against him. It's our own demise. We're choosing our own demise. But my goodness, if we respond to him in love, in faith, (laughs) respond to him to receive his grace, then you will stand and rise, built upon him, included into his kingdom, included into his grace. And as this parable is unfolding, we see something I think pretty significant. God sends his servants and his son to his vineyard, his people, He's rejected. He's killed. And that very action establishes the advancement and the growth of God's mission, and it reveals and it shows the depth of God's love. Look at this parable. See what it's saying. In a sentence, it's this. You can crush Christ. You can even crush him. You can destroy him. And it cannot lessen his love, and it cannot thwart his mission You can have Christ sent to humanity, and it happened. And you can even destroy him. And even in that process, you can't lessen God's love. It won't diminish God's love. It actually reveals the depth of God's love. It doesn't lessen God's love for us. It shows us just how much he does love us. And you can even crush Christ, and it doesn't squash his mission. It actually advances it. It actually affirms it. It actually broadens it. It actually uh, fuels God's mission. And if that is true, my friends, the Jesus movement, this Jesus mission cannot be stopped. It gets richer in a sense of God's love for his people, and it spreads faster the more pressure that comes against it. How are your optimism levels? What's got you discouraged? What's got you concerned? What's got you asking questions? Lord, are you sure that you're in control? Are you sure you still love me? Are you sure this ship is not going to sink? Are you sure you're going to see your purposes all the way through to the end? And look at this parable. You can even crush me. You can throw, you can throw the worst at Jesus in his mission. <laughs> and it cannot be derailed. The ship cannot sink. It reveals his love. And it furthers his mission. And that means the gospel of Jesus Christ simultaneously makes Christians the most realistic people on the planet and the most optimistic people on the planet at the same time. How how does the gospel make us the most realistic people on the planet? Because when we look at this parable and we see how the tenants respond to God's servants sent to us and for us, what do we see? we see an incredible sobering glimpse of human depravity on display. God sends his servants and we kill them. We beat them. We send them away. God sends his son and we destroy him. And what we're seeing there is a reminder that, that all humanity is, is, is depraved. 
every aspect of the human condition, every aspect of life and existence, there's no aspect of reality that's not in some way tainted or distorted by sin and evil and wrong. I'm the problem of the world. That, that you could, Lord of the Flies, remember the book that was, we read in high school? You could take a group of people, you can desert them on an island. If you could remove us from all of our circumstances, from all of the things that are around us, and start over, guess what? We're going to bring evil with us. It's in me. You can wipe the earth clean. You can put one family in a boat. Guess what? Sin snuck in. We brought it in. And that makes us, dear Christians, incredibly realistic. And that means... This is not necessarily a fun truth, but it's a necessary and actually a helpful truth. It means, as Christians, we're not surprised when we see incredible brokenness and incredible evil in the world. Sad? Yes. Sobered? Yes. Parts of our hearts that are stirred to say, wait a second, that's wrong, that shouldn't be that way? Yes. But not surprised, not shocked. Why? Because we know from the Garden of Eden... <laughs> Take, take the fruit. You'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Wisdom, knowledge, a place to sit on the throne apart from God, around God. And what did we do? We, humanity, took, we ate. And over and over and over again, we overreach being stewards of creation to be lords of creation and destroy ourselves and destroy everything around us in the process. It's not very, uh, an incredibly happy moment, a happy truth, a happy reality, but it means that we as Christians, we're not surprised. We're not surprised. It makes us very realistic about the brokenness in the world, the brokenness in my own life, the brokenness in our own lives. It makes us very realistic, but also very optimistic. Why? The gospel makes us the most optimistic people on the planet because we see that even in our brokenness, even in our sin, even in our evil, God's love and God's mission still continue. His love deepens for us, and his mission advances faster. It, it, it's been known for, for some measure of time uh, that the fastest-growing expression of Christianity, you want to know where it is? Iran. <laughs> Iran. In recent uh, missiological missions history, the fastest growing number of people saying, listen, I want into Jesus. Sign me up. I'm responding to his grace. The number of people coming, the number of, of, of gospel movements moving, churches happening because of the grace of Christ pouring out onto people is Iran. Now, a couple years back, I had the honor and privilege to to jump in and be a part of a conference in Egypt, to speak at a missions uh, mobilization and, and discipleship conference in Egypt. And I'll never forget this. I hope I never forget this. Conversation, and it was conversation in passing, conversation in the hallway type of a thing. There were some Egyptian leaders reflecting on the incredible speed of growth that was taking place in Iran. And the leader of the conference says, without blinking an eye, without any change of tone of voice, just talking as you would, you know, everyday stuff, weather, work, life, reflecting on the incredible growth of the church in Iran and says, oh yeah, we have Ayatollah Khomeini to thank for that, and then just carries on. And I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. what? <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, we have Ayatollah Khomeini to thank for the incredible growth of the church in Iran. Now, look through history, 
not a super happy, fuzzy character in, in, uh, in history. And it was shocking at first, but then it made a whole bunch of sense after you think about it. Because when you try to crush the Jesus movement, when you add incredible pressure time and time and time again throughout history, throughout the Bible, do you know what happens? Two things. The expression of Christianity that's already there is purified, and you try to stomp on the mission over here, and it squirts out over there. It's like trying to get that last bit of air out of the air mattress. Are you with me? <laughs> Just a little bit more, and you, and you stomp on it and try to get that air, whoop, and it pops up over there. <laughs> when you add persecution, when you add difficulty, when you add hardship, when you add pressure, do you know what's going to happen? The expression of Christianity that's there is going to become refined. It purifies. It's sending gold through fire. And it makes a whole bunch of sense, doesn't it? That if I'm going to be about this Jesus thing, and if it, it is going to cost me my life, I am very, very, very quickly going to look in my heart and look in this word to make sure I'm going to die for the right thing. <laughs> we Very quickly, we get rid of the chaff. We get rid of the little barnacles of culture and background that, that, that attach itself to our version of Christianity, because if there's pressure involved, listen, I don't want to die for things I don't need to die for. And it purifies very quickly the expression of Christianity there, and then it advances it. It advances God's mission. And if that is true, dear Christian, do you see how that makes Christians optimistic? Not because it's in our personality, not because we're aloof to the things in the world, not because, uh, um, you, know, you know, we're just happy, happy all the time. No. Because we're attached to a Lord and attached to his mission that cannot be sunk. So how do we be optimistic and realistic at the same time without being puffed up in pride or without falling into despair? Because we've all seen realism that just leaks into despair, leaks into cynicism, leaks into the, <laughs> the Eeyore uh, complex. And we've all seen optimism that's uh, it's aloof or is prideful. How do we do that? How are we realistic and optimistic at the same time, my friends? By being Christocentric, by being absolutely Christ-centered, that if we look at Christ, we see just the depth of his love. love his love holds us up out of despair. And his mission keeps us optimistic for what he is accomplishing through us. Look again, verse 9, 15, and 17. Look at this, verse 9. He went away in another country for a long while. See God's patience, his long-suffering, his forbearance. We are the stubborn vineyard, and he sticks with us. He's our vineyard. We're his vineyard. See his patience in that patience that will go all the way for him dying for us. That's what, that's what we're seeing a glimpse of in verse 15. They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. He's dying for us to be the very cornerstone that saves us. And if that shows us the depth of God's love, you can throw all the pressure in the universe at him and it will give you a deeper, richer sense of his love for you. That holds us up out of despair. He loves you. He loves this world, this broken, messed up world. He loves it. He says, it's my broken, messed up world, and I'm going to die to renew it and to save it and to bring it unto myself. That keeps you out of despair, dear Christian. 
and it gives you an incredible sense of hope, <laughs> just try to crush the Jesus movement. Try to squash it. Add pressure. It's going to purify the people that are already there. And it's going to fuel his mission even further and faster that more might see that he and he alone is our only hope. How are your optimism levels? Would you take those things that are taking digs at your heart and your soul? Is God really going to see us through? Is he really there? Does he really love us? Is this ship that is the kingdom of God really going to make it all the way to the end? Take those questions. Let them be healed by this incredible reminder. You can even crush him. It won't lessen his love. And it cannot thwart his mission. And that's a hope that will see us through to the end, through anything, because he and he alone, <laughs> he's the captain, he's the sustainer, he's the giver of grace, the God of love, come for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that any and all who are coming today heavy of heart, Lord, would you lift their chin, would you help them see your sustaining grace, your power, your might. Lord, I pray for all who are, have an oar in the water for the sake of the kingdom, whatever that looks like, in their vocation, in their family, in their volunteer ministry, in their vocational ministry, whatever that is, Lord, would you give us a glimpse? It's not our effort, it's yours, through us. Would you give us a glimpse that your kingdom will advance, not because of us, Lord, but because of what you are doing, that we can partner with you? So, Father, encourage us. Encourage us by who you are and what you have said to us today. Carry us through, Lord, for your glory, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.